0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Senior Tiger Gao. My guest today is Peter Wendell, who is the founder of Sierra Ventures, a Silicon Valley venture capital firm that has invested more than $2 billion over the past 35 years in a wide variety of successful technology companies. Peter has taught more than 2,000 Stanford MBAs over the past 30 years specifically the very popular course, Entrepreneurship and Venture Capital, co-taught with Google CEO Eric Schmidt and Scott Cooper, who is a managing partner of Andreessen Horowitz, another very big venture firm. Peter serves on the board of Merck. He also just completed his trusteeship at Princeton University. He was also uh, for six years the chairman of the board for Princeton University Endowment Company, which oversees Princeton's endowment. And during his six years of tenure of the chairmanship, uh, Princo doubled. Princeton's endowment. Peter has been recognized by Forbes magazine as one of the best, one of the 100 best uh, technology venture investors in the United States, and named one of the 15 venture capitalists on Upside Magazine's Elite 100 list of influential U.S. leaders in technology, finance, and business. We're very honored to have you here, Peter. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Great to uh, be with you, Tiger. This will be fun.
0: So maybe we can uh, start just by talking about what venture capitalist, what you do, who you are. So who is Peter Wendell? And uh, what got you uh, into venture capital?
1: Yeah, thanks, Tiger. Um, You know, I went to uh, Princeton, like you did, uh, and graduated in uh, 1972. Uh, I was lucky at uh, Princeton to be uh, fully supported by the university. A total scholarship student. My family was from no economic uh, means, but uh, I was um, quite interested in uh, in economics and in investing. Um, Right out of school, I went to work for IBM, which was kind of the technology uh, darling of its day, hard to think of that uh, back in the early seventies. And I learned a lot at IBM Uh, about uh, technology, mainly about how businesses use technology. So um, uh, about uh, eight or 10 years, I had uh, two years off uh, from IBM for good behavior to go to uh, business school. And then after uh, I came back to IBM, I uh, was approached by uh, some wealthy families to help them deploy some of their capital into uh, the early startups of the day. Uh, Sierra Ventures started in the early 80s, Apple Computer had just gone public, Genentech in the life sciences had just gone public. And a lot of people perceived the great opportunities that lie ahead in funding technology oriented businesses. So uh, this uh, family, uh, who actually uh, was a Princeton family, uh, Lewis Marks, approached me and asked if uh, I would be interested in investing some of their money in the venture business. And um, frankly, at the time, I I never would have given any money to me, <laughs> okay? <laughs> like, you know, I was some IBM guy who knew a bit, but not, uh, not very much. But it was a great chance to start a fund. The venture capital industry was tiny then. In the US, in the early 80s, the venture capital industry was deploying 3 or $4 billion a year. Uh, for reference, last year, the venture capital industry in the US deployed about $160 billion. so many, many times smaller. But it was a great chance to start to work with early stage companies and learn how to build value particularly when things went right so um you know i moved to california i'm in fact i'm sitting today up in the wine country that's not silicon valley behind us that's the dry creek valley which is a wine-growing uh, region uh, north yeah, of San
0: uh, Almost looks like a zoom background, but it's, uh, it's the yeah. No, background. it's exactly. uh, real.
1: I'm. Uh, <laughs> it's not a background. Yeah. Um, but uh, I hope we don't have too many airplanes overhead or construction projects uh, down the mountain. But. Uh, uh, more than you want to know about how things uh, got started. So a very traditional career with IBM and then uh, jumped off uh, to uh, start a venture firm, uh, probably uh, one of the highest risk things I ever did.
0: But, but, but just uh, at the right time, they, they they bet on you and bet uh, right hugely. I I suppose that well, yeah, uh... you
1: know, it's worked out, uh, it's worked out fine. Um, Sierra Ventures is now, uh, gee, almost uh, 40 years old. Uh, The way things work in the venture business is you raise a pool of capital, you invest it, hopefully there's proceeds and you you distribute those back to the investors, and then you raise another uh, fund of capital. So about every three or four years you raise a fresh fund of capital, typically those are uh, Roman numeral funds. So. The first one was Sierra Ventures. We didn't know to call it Sierra One. We weren't that optimistic. But actually, there was a Sierra Two, Three. (laughs) And most recently, uh, Sierra Ventures Fund 12 was raised. Um, I worked for about 30 years as an active investor at Sierra, and uh, the second generation of the firm has uh, moved forward. They let me hang out there and uh, use the uh, email address, <laughs> but uh, um, uh, generally, uh, the younger team there has, uh, has been taking forward the, uh, the newer funds, Sierra uh, 10, 11, and 12 are funds that I'm not an active investor from.
0: So how does the VC industry actually work? I, I suppose many people have heard about this. I mean we, we read a lot about what's happening in Silicon Valley. the, the industry has obviously grown very big. Uh, but I guess just to sketch things from from an insider's perspective over your years, how to, have you seen the VC industry evolved? How does it actually work?
1: Yeah well, you know at the highest level Tiger is pretty straight. Uh, forward. The the venture capitalist, um, uh, she or he is the party in the middle, and the inflow of funds to the venture capitalist comes from typically institutional investors that invest in the venture industry, uh, the large endowments like the Stanford Endowment, the Princeton Endowment, large foundations, Ford Foundation, uh, Hewlett Foundation. Uh, So all this institutional capital comes into the venture business. And then the venture capitalists, they're the party in the middle. And they're kind of a big opportunity sorting function a good venture firm has lots of possible places to invest their money. They have lots of different entrepreneurs. And what the venture capital is in the middle of the transaction, he or she is sorting those opportunities and rationing the capital, who gets capital and who doesn't, whose idea is going to get $20 million dumped on it to flourish. And who are we going to leave in the waiting room and, and, and not fund? So those are very important uh, decisions. Um, it's a very Different than most types of investing, like in the stock market. If you go on Robinhood and you buy a stock in the morning, you can sell it in the afternoon and you either made money or you lost money. The venture capital industry is a slow ooze all right from the time for the typical venture back deal from the time the f- the first venture capitalist writes a check to that company to the time the first liquidity is received by the venture community is typically about 7 or 8 years so you know, for venture capitalists, it takes a long time to get feedback. Imagine if if you were a student at Princeton, you handed in a paper, and the professor said, "Yeah, I'll give it back to you in ten years with your grade." You know, like, wow, that that's half my life. So, so it's a very long time horizon sort of investment, and the so the sort of just, just
0: to, just to know, quickly interject in that part. How do you hone your skills, your, your company evaluation skills, your intuition, when you have such a long feedback loop? You could have invested in something you don't even know if your best turn out to be right or wrong in eight years.
1: Great question. Because, like, um, uh, like you could be dead. <laughs> it's like the Nobel yeah, Prize. Yeah. You, know? Yeah. you know, you get it you twenty right years after. after your work. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But um, that's why the concept of a venture firm is important because it's kind of an apprenticeship visit uh, business. You know, you can you can hang out your shingle and say you're a venture capitalist, but there's a long learning curve. So if you work. In a firm like at Sierra Ventures, you know, the firm's been around 35 years. There's a lot of collective wisdom. So some new person joins Sierra Ventures, he or she is going to um, get a sense from those that came before them. But you're very right that the, the feedback loop is is complicated by a number of things. It's not just the uh, long elapsed time you know, the judgments you're trying to make, you're trying to invest in an appropriate value. So you're trying to buy smart, but you're, if you're not going to be getting liquid for like eight years, like you don't know what the capital markets are you're going to be selling into. So so how should you value the exit? You, you don't know, you know, is the market going to be in a trough or a peak or what's going on? And you don't know what other technology waves are coming. You know you could invest in something that's a cats me now, and six years later it's a turtle on its back, you know so so it's really hard to get feedback. There's a lot of instinct and intuition particularly in early stage venture investing. I'm sure some of your listeners have gone to business school. They know what a Harvard Business School case study looks like. Well, when a venture capitalist comes on something, it's like a Harvard Business School case study with all the exhibits ripped out. There are no numbers. There are hopes and dreams and some entrepreneur waving his arms frantically about how great it's going to be. But you're really making instinctive judgments, to your point, that are gonna have long feedback loops and gonna ultimately get liquid in an environment that you have little clue of what that environment is. So good luck making money in the venture business.
0: Peter, you were just talking about how VC investors are really taking risks in entrepreneurs, uh, but it does seem that the industry has uh, you know, really ballooned since the, since the early 80s and 90s when, when you started. Um, it, it does seem that there are more capital uh, than good entrepreneurs r- right now. I mean, I, w- I was talking to one of my friends who's like, who started a fintech company and is going to like YC, and he's talking that like, like people are people are overflowing him with 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 money, like higher rounds, higher rounds. So, so how do you think about the current VC industry, the environment, uh, all that stuff? Well,
1: you're certainly right that there's an awful lot of money uh, available. I mentioned uh, earlier that uh, last year there was about uh, $160 billion of new uh, US domestic venture rounds. I compared that to the earlier days of Sierra Ventures, three or four billion a year. Uh, And hey, there's certainly more entrepreneurs now, too, but um, the US and the world more generally is awash with risk capital. And the other implication of that, Tiger, is that it's changed the dynamic between the entrepreneur and the venture capitalist. You know, it used to be that the venture capitalists had a lot more power in that relationship. Right. Because there wasn't a lot of capital and when the venture capitalists were uh, rationing the capital, as I described in the beginning, you know, there wasn't so much to give out. Now there's a ton of capital to give out and the entrepreneurs pick which venture capitalists they want to take it from. So it's really changed the dynamic, uh, giving the entrepreneur a lot more power. It's, it's a great time to start a company
0: maybe we can talk a little bit more about the relationship between entrepreneurs and and venture firms. Uh, You gave a talk at the Griswold Center at Princeton just a couple months ago, and you were saying how entrepreneurs really need to make the venture capitalist investors have enough greed to overcome their fear. So they're actually incentivized to to make this highly risky investment. How does this uh, greed FOMO work, the fear of missing out work in in VC uh, world?
1: Yeah, well, you know, for a venture capitalist, they're dealing with a portfolio of companies. So a, a typical venture fund, I was talking earlier about Roman numeral funds, you know, a typical venture fund might have 30 or 40 investments in it. And you know what? 80% of those really aren't going to matter, right? Like uh, less than twenty percent of the deals are going to produce virtually all the profit in the portfolio, and that's true in good times or bad times. But um, you know, it's it's like like baseball. It, it's it's about a slugging average, not a batting average. And if you get a couple of home runs, it changes the whole score of the game. And it's funny, in good times or bad times, it works out that way. It's because in good times, a, a, a huge hit occurs, and the venture firm makes so much money on that single investment that not much else that they did for three or four years really mattered, you know? Now, now my wife tells me, Tiger, just do those deals and come home every night at five o'clock, and we'll have a nice <laughs> long yeah. you, you know. Yeah. But unfortunately, yeah. given the sort of feedback loop, we were, you don't know for years if you even did it. But you know, to wait you know, for
0: seven years for the wine. To exactly,
1: come. Yeah. but yeah. Um, but 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 anyway. So so on the dynamic, you were asking about the the dynamic and and the venture capitalist's greed overcoming his or her the fear, fear. Yeah. and I don't want to paint venture capitalists as horrible, greedy people, but I use greed in an economic sense because if you're building a portfolio of investments, Sierra Ventures Fund 5, you're building a portfolio of investments, Sierra Ventures Fund 5 was a long time ago. It had about 22 investments in it. And, you know, four of the investments returned more than three times the total amount of capital in that fund. So some of the other ones were all right, but they just don't matter. So if you're the venture capitalist, all you're doing is this entrepreneur is sitting across from you and you're saying, is he or she bringing me the big one? Is this the black swan? <laughs> is this uh, one of the real uh, future unicorns that I don't want to miss out of?" You know, venture capitalists fund bad things all the time. I just got done saying that 50, 70% of the deals never amount to much. That's not a sin in the venture world funding something bad. That's the risk reward profile of the asset category. What's bad is missing the big one. You know, you had Jeff Bezos sitting in your conference room pitching this book company and you said, oh, this guy's kind of nerdy. I don't think, you know, next. It's yeah. yeah. like, holy mackerel. Yeah. Ten years from now, you're saying, ah, <laughs> I missed Amazon, right? So, um, so it's that fear of missing out. You get those juices going in a venture capitalist. He or she's likely to write you a check.
0: So we, we had uh, Austin R. Red, who is the founder of, uh, of uh, a firm called Lambda School on the show a couple months ago, and he was telling us he was part of the Y Combinator program, the very famous uh, incubator. And, and he was saying how uh, we were asking him this kind of question, whether, you know, this, this FOMO, and he was saying how uh, YC had like a maybe 7% stake in, in Stripe and Stripe is this company that's like valued $100 billion very recently. He said, that's like a 7 billion kind of return. So he said, there's no way that YC has ever, you know, invested $7 billion. So the, the fact that you have one of those and certainly YC has other uh, very successful companies like Coinbase and so on. So you just need one investment and, and that kind of saves everything. But, but that, that also seems to be uh, generating an interesting dynamic because if I'm a partner at Sequoia and I had a call with uh, some, some kid in, in some college, and there's another fund from benchmark, you know, that partner doesn't want to miss out and he wants to hop on the call uh, as well. So everybody kind of piles on. So it, it, it just seems that right now, especially with the low interest rate, it's so easy to just write a check. Right. I, I, everybody just want to get the check out you know, immediately. So do you feel like we're, we're entering a cycle where so much money, uh, the, the, the due diligence process becomes much quicker and, and the FOMO is driving the investments more than more than anything?
1: Well, um, the short answer is uh, there's a lot of data to support that point of view. And um, specifically, although last year was a very active and big year in the venture capital industry, a lot of the money was being invested in somewhat later rounds. And by a round, I mean an entrepreneurial uh, a company that's in relationship with uh, venture capitalists the venture capitalists don't write one check and then they're done with the company forever venture capitalists usually provide enough capital to fund the company maybe for a year or two and then there's another round the rounds are usually designated by letters so there's uh, series a series b series c um the average uh Venture company that gets past the second round, you know, that doesn't just hang around for a year or two and then die. But the average company that goes a distance would have about seven rounds of capital before it reaches a liquidity event. So for the venture capitalists, there's seven times that they kind of re underwrite how they feel about that company. And normally, Tiger, in each new round, the existing venture capitalists usually have one new firm come in because that new firm kind of prices the deal, right? Because they're a virgin. They don't have any horse in the race. So um, the first interesting thing is who gets the phone call to be the new investor, right? Because venture capital is a competitive industry. Venture firms compete with each other, but it's also an industry with a lot of collusion and a lot of (laughs) syndication, So it's both a competitive industry and a collusive industry. I mean, think of it like the insurance industry. Insurers compete to to write insurance for this or that, but insurers also form reinsurance syndicates, right? So it's the same thing uh, structurally. But um, what's gone on most recently, uh, last year in the venture industry, is the majority of the capital now isn't going to new ideas. It's not going to some entrepreneur walking into the conference room for the first time and getting venture capital, but it's going to the C rounds and the D rounds and the E rounds where it looks like you mentioned Stripe. Stripe's still a private company. You know, Stripe has not gone public yet. I think it's on the G round. I don't know, (laughs) but it's far along. But um, uh, so, um, that's a great example. Stripe attracted tons of venture capital last year, but it's already a company that's seven or eight years along, has a clear franchise, looks like a winner. So the FOMO is high, right? Because, oh, Stripe's going to be the biggest IPO since Google or blah, blah, blah. So yeah. um, So there's all this later stage capital piling in. Ever since um, Sarbanes-Oxley, you you know, most entrepreneurs are in no rush to go public. They're just as soon say private, all right, we'll have the G round, now we'll have the F round next year. You know, they're getting increasing valuations, but um, the most interesting part of the venture business is, is the first round, the initial decision to invest. And those are getting somewhat squeezed out because so much of the money is being funneled into about 50 or 60 later stage companies who are still private. And um, so it's a different uh, dynamic. And those are very competitive rounds to get in there. And because they're so competitive, that's why the price gets bid
0: up. Uh, There's so much to unpack there, even if we take the Stripe example. I mean, Stripe in some way, they have no incentive to really have to go Public. I mean, the, the, sure, you're not, you know, you're on paper, you could on, be on paper, uh, be billionaires if you go public and so on, but you know, these guys already have all their connections or all, all the resources they need to, to, to develop a company anyways. And as you said, more and more late stage capital just pile in those growth equity investors. So, so do you think this crowding out effect is crowding out the actual early stage capital that needs to be devoted to, to more early stage companies?
1: Well, the, the phenomenon I described is taking place on an ever rising slope of, of more venture capital overall. So if if last year the industry hit another record, 160 billion out the door, and uh, even uh, e- even if something like 110 billion of that went to the, the stripes of the world, you know, data bricks, uh, companies uh, like that, that still leaves. A much bigger slug of capital for the real early stage, oh, higher risk, higher reward things. So, um, the crowding bigger. out um, is maybe not the best word choice. I used it's. It's more that the dynamics of the industry are um, uh, shifting, and you know the imprimatur of a great venture firm investing in you, Sequoia says, oh yeah, this, we're in every round of this or Andreessen and Horowitz or some of the more visible firms. That Then the Tiger Globals want to come into that. The, these people who aren't even venture capital, I mean, they're hedge
0: fund guys. We should really talk about them. I mean, like Co2, so there's, yeah, um, Tiger global. Yeah, the, these hedge funds, they, they, they've, they've been so aggressive in preempting the good tech companies. They move very quickly through diligence process. They, they pump up the valuation. They just give you cash, right? And, and they seem to have changed the game.
1: Well, they have. Um, We'll see. Uh, You know, um, about 15 years ago, uh, Josh Lerner and Paul Gompers, two professors at Harvard Business School, um, wrote a book uh, about the venture capital cycle. And um, it was how uh, historically more and more money piles into the venture industry, uh, finally returns start to diminish and then the interest in the industry from the institutional investors goes down but then you know when there's more of a scarcity of capital returns improve and you know tiger all all financial markets are cyclical okay virtually all financial markets across all asset the venture capital markets are no exception but Uh, one of the things that, um, that Lerner and Gompers uh, uh, offer in this book is some pretty good evidence that uh, for, because of some of the factors we spoke about earlier in the interview, that um, the feedback loop is so slow and sticky in the venture industry that investors don't get it. The money keeps pouring in long after the punch bowl left, you know, and, 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 Therefore, the cyclicality isn't as efficient. It's not like, you know, if you're trading a high cap, you're trading General Motors stock, or you're trading Merck stock. That's a very efficient supply and demand sort of market. But but venture capital, the cycles aren't uh, as efficient. And so there's a lot of overshooting in both directions. At least this is what Gompers um Uh, argues in his uh, Joshua and Paul Gompers argue, they've recently come out with a new uh, updated edition of their book. You can find it online. I think it's the MIT press published it, but it's called the venture capital cycle. It's exactly what you were talking about.
0: So do you think we're nearing a more of a overshooting stage where it's more of a bubble? I mean, there are some structural reasons. It's hard to
1: imagine. It's hard to imagine that we're not. Uh, Okay. I I mean, if you just look at the multiples and um, the valuation metrics, um, it, it, it would be hard to say that, boy, no, we're very constrained. This is gonna continue straight up and to the right for the next 10 years. There, there's no stopping it. You know, I don't think that's where we are.
0: What would a VC winter look like? Because. You also previously mentioned in your Griswold Center talk that a lot of the institutional investors, the limited partners, the LPs, such as the Princeton Endowment, they are capable of driving the cyclicality in this industry because they can together come in with all their capital, where they pull out of their capital, and so on. So, uh, what, what would a VC winter look like? Well, uh, first of
1: all, it's um, it's not a southern uh, a sudden storm. You know, as I was saying before. It's more an ooze, right? Because um, <laughs> it's uh, remember when um, when an institution makes a commitment to a venture firm, that's a ten year commitment. Like a venture fund, Five, that that yeah. fund goes on for ten years. The limited partners' capital is is tied up for, up for ten for years. For ten years. So so even if every big endowment and every big foundation were listening in on our conversations Might say, said, Oh, holy mackerel. Did you hear that uh, Tiger and that Wendell yeah. guy talking like, Gee, we better stop doing venture capital. <laughs> it would take years before, before the, the valve finally shut, yeah. you know, and the valve would just get shut because there's so much forward commitment. The valve would just get shut in, in time for returns <laughs> to start picking up again. So, uh And again, this is uh a bit of what uh Lerner and Gompers argue in their book that that it's that the cycles are somewhat more smooth but uh, a good example of this would be after the tech bubble burst in uh, uh 2000 and 2001. in uh, two thousand the amount of limited partner capital fresh capital being committed to the industry was in the range of a hundred billion dollars. And by 2002, the amount of uh, new limited partner capital committed to the venture industry was six billion. All right, <laughs> so like, from a hundred billion to six billion, that will eventually ripple through, okay? But again, once they make a commitment, the commitment is oozed in over uh, five years or so. So it it's not like the whole Tech world stop for five years, but when the forward commitments, you know, your forward commitments are less, then the VCs are going to be more constrained in their behavior.
0: So it sounds like you cannot time the cycle. I mean, simply because the cycles are, by by definition, by construction, much longer. But but shouldn't investors be somewhat wor- worry about, about this? Say say, I'm Princeton Endowment. I could say we seem to be on an upward trend, and I kind of feel like you know, in a couple of years, the bubble may pop and maybe now is not the good time we invest in. But after the bubble pop, it sounds like in 2002, it should actually be the great time to step in because that is when the cycle will get yeah, back up. But
1: again. it's it's easy to do these things in <laughs> yeah. hindsight. And, yeah. um, you know, um, it's interesting if you look at, um, and, and these numbers are, are, are public, so I'll, I can talk about them. Uh, at the time of the the last huge bubble in two thousand, if you look at the Princeton Endowment, they work on a June thirtieth fiscal year, and I won't remember this perfectly, but I'll be uh, quite close. For the year ending uh, June thirtieth, two thousand, the Princeton Endowment had an overall twelve re- month return of about thirty two or thirty three percent, which is pretty good for moving billions of dollars thirty three percent a year. But the way they got that Is the sliver of the endowment that was invested in venture capital for those 12 months actually returned 202 percent? And all the other stuff, the other 90 percent of the endowment, you know, had its normal kind of eight or nine percent return. And you do the math on that and you come out with an overall return of uh, you know, 30, 35 percent. So there you are, proudly reporting on the steps of Nassau Hall that you've had a 35% return in your endowment, largely because the venture industry really powered you. But you know what? I think it's at a peak and we're not doing any venture investing for the next five years. Ugh. Like what everyone would say, wait a minute, what is that? You're yeah, killing yeah. the goose that's laying the golden eggs. So it's, yeah. it's hard emotionally to back Talk off from something things. just at the moment you yeah. should. And then if you don't invest for four or five years, then you're going to have no venture capital, new vintage in your portfolio for five years. You, you just, you have to hold your nose and, and stay. And the venture, I mean, you are you were an investor in Andreessen Horowitz Fund 2, Fund 3, and then you thought the world was too overpriced so you didn't show up for a fund. You think they're going to let you back in their fund? <laughs> yeah, yeah you know. by the way,
0: they're very exclusive regarding who can come in because the top VC investors, it's very hard to get into a fund. To get allocation into these, uh, into these funds, yeah,
1: yeah, and the the reason it's so hard is because different than if you if you look in the U.S. at public stock investors and you take the top one hundred public stock investors, the difference between number one and number one hundred is pretty tight. You know, maybe it's two hundred basis points, three hundred basis points. But if you take the top hundred venture investors in the U.S. There's a huge dispersion. It's about three or four exit dispersion. So the the value of being in the top quartile venture fund is hugely high compared to the value of being in the top quartile public uh, investor because the dispersion much, uh, much broader. So what does that mean? It means if you're a top quartile venture fund, instead of keeping 20% of the profits for you, the so-called carried interest, you probably keep 30%. And instead of charging a 2% management fee, maybe you charge a 3% management fee because your returns are so outsized that you can tax them in that way. And the net return to the endowment of the foundation is still much better than what they're gonna get if they're in some third tier venture fund. So that's why there's such preening by the institutional investors to get into certain venture funds.
0: So we've been talking about cycles for a bit and I'm not asking you to try to time the cycle, but I would love to hear your thoughts on where we are today because there are people who say, you know after the year of covid we, we saw this big you know tech boom the tech stocks are up you know 100 percent 200 percent there are people who say we're at a very late stage of a cycle and it's a bubble and there are also people who say well if after covid we're entering another great stage of innovation and growth so so this is kicking off another great period of secular growth so if you look at five years out ten years out these companies are overvalued now, but they won't be in five, 10 years. So this is actually a great time to to get in. So uh, which side of the argument do you you kind of try to lean on? Where do you think we're at right now?
1: Yeah, well, um, I I would be on the more skeptical (laughs) side of that argument. I mean, look at last year, the NASDAQ for the calendar year, Twenty twenty one, the Nasdaq was up about what forty one percent, forty
0: two percent. S and P five
1: hundred is like up. Yeah, well, but but the Nasdaq uh, outperformed the S and P by by quite a bit uh, last year. But the S and P was you know well in the double digits. Yeah. But so, but but just take the Nasdaq because that's the tech uh, laden. You know, you you were asking about tech and the, the the tech bubble. So, how many years? can the NASDAQ grow at 40% a year? Like, hey, you know, that's not happening. I'm 71 years old. I've seen this movie many times. Trust me, the NASDAQ is not going to grow at 40% a year for the next 10 years. Um, Not not happening. And yes, I, I think you are right that there is a good climate for innovation right now. And, you know, the economy is snapping back. But, you know... During the pandemic, the venture industry didn't go on vacation. There was about a three month period near the beginning of the pandemic where venture activity slowed. But um, uh, I I, I gave some full year numbers before, and the numbers for the first quarter of this year uh, are equally robust. We're still in the second quarter, so I haven't seen the numbers for that yet. But, um, you know, the, on the snapback theory, that implies you're snapping back from something, but, but but there was never a big contraction that we're now snapping back from. Is all I'm saying that that the venture capital industry is by and large motored right along during the pandemic. There was about ninety days in the very beginning where everyone was scratching their head, but uh, I do think there'll be a lot of opportunity, uh, but. Um, how much money can you make on it? Because it's a supply-demand dynamic and and, in capital provision. And if there's so much capital washing in, and you're paying such high valuations, and only a third of this is going to work anyway, so that third that works has to really work to cover the two-thirds of the sins that you never should have done in the first place. You know, so I'm um, I, I'm not thinking more robust return days are ahead. I'm thinking the opposite.
0: So how should we uh, interpret this current situation, especially for maybe a retail investor and individual respect investors? There's this whole SPAC boom, special purpose acquisition. Uh, companies and, and that whole narrative was that you know we, we are finally exposing the main street investors the mom and pops in the midwest the opportunity to invest in emerging tech companies because for decades they've been told to just put their money in vanguard vanguard but now uh, you can get into uh, on, on a train of uh, electric vehicles or, or nuclear energy or, or something so democratizing might... <laughs> democratizing yeah, exactly. yes Yes, yeah, they, 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 people are even talking about uh, breaking off LP units of venture funds or yeah. something, and, and and you you know packaging it, them up you, like a
1: security and exactly Wall Street can securitize, securitize anything. Yes, Tiger, you <laughs> might be taken public. You
0: know, we're trying to take this podcast public. I was wondering yeah, if you'd yeah, well, like. Well, be- I
1: just so I get my founder shares. It's okay. <laughs> take um, part in this, but yes. um, you, you know uh, that part. Of the SPAC narrative, and, and for your listeners, and most of them understand that's a a special purpose acquisition uh, company SPAC, and it's basically a blank check of capital that's raised by a promoter uh, in a public stock. So. Um, I'm a promoter and the promoters, some of them have been financial people. Some of them have been athletes, anyone who's like got Colin a big,
0: Kaepernick. And, you know, uh, yeah, athletes I mean, and,
1: we yeah. can have tiger Gow's back. I mean, you <laughs> can raise the spec. So um, because you got a big following on your podcast. So you raise a hundred million dollars. And, but, there's no company. There's no, I mean, you're a nice guy, Tiger, but, but you know, there's no operating company. There's no revenue. There's no expense. There's no profit, you know, all those conventional little things that actually drive the economy. None of that's there in the beginning with the SPAC. So then the promoter of the SPAC goes out and finds an operating company and buys the operating company into the SPAC, uh, Helping himself or herself, the SPAC promoter helps themselves to ten or twenty percent of the economics for their trouble, and um, so let's say they buy a company that was venture backed. Meanwhile, the venture capitalist he or she's helped themselves a part of the profits and their charity interest or their management fee. This by the, by the time the poor public person put their money in the SPAC, you know, this is a pretty promoted uh, skimmed off the top, and they have. No idea what they're investing in. They put it in a blank pool. And y- you know, then the SPAC has to make an investment within two or three years, or they got to give all the money back. So you have right now, you got a hundred or more SPACs out there that are a year, year and a half old and have made no investment. The t- the watch is ticking, they got to make an investment in the next six or seven months, and then they gotta make an investment in one month, or it's all over, they gotta give all the money back. What quality, what sort of wonderful investment do you think they're gonna turn up when when there's 20 minutes left, right? It's like if you have a term paper due and you wait until the last day of the term to write it, you know, it it might not be A plus work. Uh, Okay, so um, I, I don't think this is gonna end super well. And um, the when the um, when the SPAC tucks in an operating company, they they put all promotional data out. There's no rules. It's like with the with the SEC, when you go public, you can't make random 10-year forecasts of what you think you can do. But here, once you're SPAC, you're already public. So the process isn't regulated by the SEC, at least not yet. But the SEC has made a lot of rumblings here, particularly in the last couple of months. So I, I think the SPAC process is good because it does give Main Street a chance to get in on early stage deals. but. I'm not sure a SPAC portfolio is going to be any better than the venture portfolio in that some of these will work out really well, but a lot of them won't. And for SPAC investors, most of them don't have a portfolio of SPACs where they're investing in 20 SPACs and they realize two or three are going to be great home runs and eight or nine are going to lose all their money. You know, it's just the majority of people are going to be in things that, that don't have a happy outcome, just my opinion.
0: So, so Peter, I guess the greater question here, you know, uh, we've been talking about SPACs and at the beginning of the interview, you also mentioned something that it's a great time to be an entrepreneur. Do, do you think that because the access of uh, liquidity to capital has become much easier because there's so much capital flowing around. Do you think it's a good time for, for flourishment of human potential uh, in, in this age? Because if you're an entrepreneur, if, if you are some nuclear power uh, project that was previously unfunded, now there's so much cheap, cheap capital that, that can fund you. So so many people will say, you know, if you look at the dot-com bubble, sure, a lot of people lost money, but that was the age that ushered in some great innovations, and if the underlying thing that you're funding is some technological innovations, you know we can solve climate change, you know, with this kind of frothy capital.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and yes, that's part of why I say I think it's great time to uh, to start a business because there's lots of capital available. But the the other thing you need, Tiger, when you start a business, is you need human capital for any venture-backed startup that does well, they're going to be hiring tens of people, hundreds of people, ultimately thousands of people. And, you know, right now we're in a moment in our society when a lot of people are kind of re-underwriting their career decisions, they're re-underwriting what they want to do with their life. And I think there's going to be more of a swing Toward more entrepreneurial activity, people hanging out at bigger institutions. Um, you know, they realize they can work from anywhere. Um, they've been watching here for the last three or four years. These huge personal fortunes created in entrepreneurial situations, like it's, it's kind of a pretty strong reinforcing moment for someone who's in their mid 20s to mid 40s to say, you know, I think now's the time to really go for it. Because there's lots of capital available. I've, I've really spent the last 15 months in lockdown thinking about what I really want to do with my life. And I don't think it's being in a big employer. So I think there'll be an even greater flow of human talent into the entrepreneurial sector. We already have plenty of money going there. There's always lots of ideas. Um, and there's the pandemic brought a whole bunch of changing ground rules. And when ground rules change, that's a good time for new winners and losers. You know, if everything's status quo, it's, it's harder to have a breakthrough than if all the ground rules are changing. So how can I capitalize on the new ground rule? You know, So I, I, I think all of those factors, not just the availability of the capital, bode for, uh, for interesting days ahead. But I don't think returns are gonna stay as high as they are, and that will be a damper.
0: So it's more of a nuanced situation right now, meaning we will likely see another era of great innovations, but it's not saying that the current valuation level with the current froth are justified per se so yeah. well
1: yeah if you um, <laughs> you know one of my um, one of my better investments in my venture career was uh, Intuit. They make a turbotax, uh, they previously made Quicken software. So this is a company that currently has a 135 billion dollar market cap. It's a publicly traded company been public for years. So I was able, to buy six percent of that company for about two and a half million dollars. <laughs> okay, now yeah. it, there's a slight uh, time lag here. <laughs> you know, that yeah. was like 20 years ago, all right. But, still. but if if instead of getting six percent of the company for my two and a half million dollars in today, you know, um, the the huge increase in valuation, these things. You know, maybe instead of getting 6%, you get 0.6%. So the company has to be 10 times more successful for you to get the same return you would have gotten. So so we can have lots of entrepreneurial success and, and and lots of innovation in our society, but it's all for the investor, it's all about the ratio of the going in price to the going out price.
0: You is know, this still a, a good time to be a venture investor? I mean, it seems that the market is becoming more efficient. Returns are might be coming down a little bit. So, uh, yeah, but know, are I, they
1: better than the next best thing in your portfolio? You know, I mean, the reason um, w- will venture capital continue to beat bonds? You know, probably yes, and. Um, and, and again, it's so hard to call the timing because not only are you judging the conditions when you go in, you can see those, say, hey, it's pretty high value. You have no visibility on the conditions when you're gonna go out of that particular investment that your venture fund makes, You know, cause that's seven years away. Most people don't I, I, know what the capital markets are gonna be in seven months, <laughs>
0: seven years. I, I also meant from an individual perspective, uh, I mean, back when you first started, that, that seems to be the age when not that many people were doing venture capital investing, and, and that's that was the time when if you did well, you really shined. But today, even, even, an, even an
1: idiot, an idiot, an unbackable idiot like me could make a lot of money. But, but you today know, much harder, we're shooting yeah. <laughs> shooting fish in a barrel. You know, it took now venture industry is really hard, but back then it was easy. It was hard to lose money. You know, Tiger, if you look at uh, every institutional uh, venture fund that was formed during the 80s, and by institutional venture fund, I mean more than $10 million of capital, more than half of it coming from people other than the people running the fund. So they made money. Not one of those funds failed to return capital. Then you yeah. look at the bond funds of the, yeah. when there was the great uh, Asian contagion, you know, this huge write off the month, when, when like a quarter of all bond funds broke the buck and lost money. I mean, it was the world on its head, right? The high risk thing, venture capital, you almost couldn't lose money. Became and the, the risk thing. <laughs> so when, when the venture industry first started to take off, you really had to be an idiot not to make money. Okay, so, so, but that changed. Now it's hard.
0: <laughs> I mean, even last year, I feel like when, you know, the, the Reddit traders, when they are around Robinhood, I mean, my, my friends who invest in Bitcoin and Tesla are, are doubling their portfolios in, in two months. and it, it seems that everybody's making money. And I want to, to ask you about this because people portray uh, cryptocurrencies or, or decentralized finance or Bitcoin, you know, as the, as the next uh, big wave, you know, inefficient market, um some kind of maybe not that high of a bar of entry but you kind of have to have some knowledge you have to go in there so is that the new frontier for investing you know we we see Andreessen Horowitz just raised a new fund for crypto Mm -hmm. I mean people are stepping in institutions are stepping in so what do you think of the space is that the new frontier where every fund being raised right now in crypto will will return money
1: (laughs) yeah I um uh First of all, I'm not a deep crypto investor uh, myself. My my colleague at Stanford, uh, Scott Cooper, who you referenced, and Andreessen Horowitz, is um, is a huge hawk on crypto, and Andreessen's raised a couple of funds. And they've attracted very respected investors to those funds. They're not raising it from some uh, offshore family you never heard of. (laughs) I mean, these are institutions you and I know. And, you know, some of the big crypto investments that have done well are the people who are uh, making the the shovels and pickaxes for the crypto industry. You know, it's like the the people who made the uh, the blue jeans for the gold miners. You know, it didn't matter if they ever hit gold or not; they had to buy blue jeans to go to work. Okay, so uh, a lot of the the crypto stuff are people uh, making a different structure and um, different enabling technologies for Bitcoin. Uh, physically holding a bitcoin itself you know ha- has been a very up and down proposition and in the last uh, 6 or 7 weeks i'm not sure your buddies who were crowing wildly <laughs> 5 months ago are still yeah, five yeah. Months, <laughs> you know it, it's had a lot of cyclicality and you know it's still not fully mainstream cryptocurrencies time Will tell if your how these are going to be adopted, and and there's still, you know, there's still a fair amount of uh, skepticism. It's supposed to be this high integrity blockchain, but you know, some of the characters hanging around the Bitcoin world haven't been the most high integrity folks, and um, some of the things that have occurred haven't been so good. So um, uh, I, I think we'll see right now. Of uh, the economic activity last year in the U.S. venture capital, you know, I think crypto was maybe about six or seven percent of the action. I don't even think it was in double digits. You know, it's it's still heavily uh, software companies, SaaS. Obviously, last year with the pandemic, life science companies picked up a lot more of the pie than they normally would, and you know crypto has its place on the risk frontier, for sure. And obviously, there's been some great fortunes created already. But um, it's still a reasonably modest percentage of the overall venture capital uh, risk investment scene.
0: It seems like you're somewhat hesitant and, and skeptical of those new phenomenons, you know, like SPACs, like the frothy markets, but do, do you feel like you are a techno-optimist or, or that you hold an inherently optimistic attitude towards these uh, tech innovations and say, that, that seems to be the, the future trend, that will be the trend?
1: Oh, absolutely, and SAS, you know, I, I am all in on uh, on software as a service. I have no skepticism there. I, I just the only thing one needs to be careful of as an investor is the two things that matter: the price you buy and the price you sell, and the, and the time in between. You know, and I'm just saying if you're um, coming into a company like Snowflake, okay at uh, uh, 75 times forward revenue, <laughs> not forward yeah, yeah. ETA, not forward, but forward <laughs> revenue, that it's kind of priced for perfection, or yes. even more than, it's priced for a miracle, you know? Yes. And, um, you know, they would argue, uh, listen, here's what the next 10 years look like. And, you know, it might, It might work out. Google went public at $85 a share, you know, and uh, it's trading uh, at, uh, you know, thousands of dollars a share. And people thought $85 was expensive at the time, but it was pretty consistent with Yahoo's multiple at the time with other companies. My, my skepticism around SaaS and other technologies is, is more skepticism as an investment that one will be able to sell for a lot more than they bought. It's not skepticism about the strength of the underlying technology. It's not skepticism that uh, on-premise enterprise software is dead. Uh, you know that all software is moving to the cloud. I, I don't have any skepticism about the fundamental essence of the technology. I'm just saying as a mercenary capitalist, you have to sell for more than you buy. And it's not <laughs> clear how you're going to do that at the moment.
0: The price level does matter. It's like saying Bitcoin is the future, but if you bought a 65k at the very top, yeah. it will still take you maybe much longer to recover yeah. than, than buying a 30k. I mean, so, so it will make the world of the difference or you're just... Kind of throwing the money away if you're just buying at the top so uh, uh peter i know we're kind of near near in the end and, uh could could we maybe run over 10, 10 minutes or something yeah just to, that's just fine because we had up. a
1: little break in there yeah just yeah know, why, why don't, don't we do up 10 up some... more
0: minutes that's fine yeah, yeah. thank uh, you I, I wanted to at the end ask you some questions about the limitations of the vc funding and, and its role with the public investments on, because you mentioned that you were very bullish on SaaS, but the cynical people would say too much money is going to SaaS going into uh into these uh, companies that will nevertheless return um, profits to you within the next five to seven years. But there are innovations such as tackling climate change. There are more foundational uh, technologies that would require a much longer time horizon, 20 years, 30 years, life sciences, biotech, things like that, that VC funds, private investments are fundamentally uh, unable to capture. So how would you respond to something like that?
1: Well, venture funds <clears throat> are an economic proposition that doesn't mean that investments can't be made that that have a social overlay and that have social impact. But generally, when a venture capitalist takes money from an endowment or a foundation, then they're a fiduciary of that money and their job is obviously not to break the law, but to be law-abiding, but to try and grow the money as best as they can to serve the educational purpose of the institution, the philanthropic purpose of the foundation. The venture fund's primary job is not to say, gee, how can I help climate change? And maybe I can make some money while I do that, but maybe I don't, I wanna help climate change. That's the foundation's job to help climate change. (laughs) But the venture firm's job is to produce a good capital return so that the foundation or the endowment or whoever the end investors in the venture firm can fulfill their mission. Now, there are increasingly some venture funds who say, actually, even if it means we have to get somewhat less return, we're going to focus our capital on things with high social impact and we're not going to just continually work to have greed, overcome fear and, and fund the the 58th uh, SaaS company, you know, or uh, a company in another segment where there's already lots of business activity going on. And, That's for the investors to decide if if they want to invest in funds like that. Um, But for most social funders in our country, most foundations, most wealthy families, they want to grow their capital in a way that isn't counterproductive for the social things, but they're generally not trying to grow their capital in a way that absolutely maximizes the programmatic outcomes. They want to maximize the financial outcomes, take the financial gain, and then the family involved or the foundation will direct that to the social purposes. So it's not exactly church and state, but <laughs> there, there are kind of two different things going on there. And if you try to jumble them all together, you have to be careful when you do that.
0: It, does, it does, does that make sense? Uh, yes, that, that absolutely makes sense because you have a different mandate. Your, your mandate is not to yeah. produce social good per se. But, but when you look at you know another investment, another SaaS company or another consumer goods, another social media, do you feel that sometimes that there's a little bit of access that, that you know had we devoted, there are other efficient frontiers, risky frontiers that could be invested in pockets, uh,
1: well, you know, I'm I'm kind of an old-fashioned guy who thinks the economy <laughs> will largely sort that out. If we have one too many SaaS companies, you know what? It's not going to do well. <laughs> if, if it's the, uh, uh, you know, if it's the fifth entrance, uh, the fifth entrant into a space, you know, doing... Uh, um, uh, SaaS software for pet stores. Let's say, yeah, okay. Yeah. And this is now the fifth company that's trying to yeah, have okay. a SaaS program to run your pet store. But there's only so many pet stores in America. Most of them are online anyway. By now, you know when when fields get overcrowded, economics take over. A million years ago, before you were born, and the floppy disk drive industry was here at the beginning of the IT. Uh, revolution in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, uh, 41 floppy disk drive companies got funded by venture capitalists. Five of them made money, right? And each venture capitalist, they had a smart guy like Tiger Gao analyzing, running the numbers, but they weren't thinking in the total sense of the market, right? They were making individual decisions about individual companies. And that's a little what's going on now. You can develop a case for why the next SaaS company is gonna be great, but every venture firm is doing the same thing and they're all gonna collide on the market at once. So, um, uh, but economics take care of that. You you don't need a scolding, (laughs) economics will scold you.
0: Uh, P- Peter, I guess since we're on this topic about social value, maybe my, my question, my ending question for this s- section would be, do, do you think Silicon Valley has, uh, at either at this current stage or, you know, in, over the past 30, 40 years, uh, yielded overall net positive uh, impacts on a society? Because, for example, people say it's very hard to say Facebook is a net positive impact on a society. It's very hard to, you know, so um, w- w- what do you think of that question and, and do yeah. you think to, the technology a lot of times cannot solve the problem that technology creates?
1: Well, as for the first part of your question, I think absolutely the country and the world are better places because of the innovation brought forward over the last couple of decades by technology companies. Does that mean... Everything venture capitalists ever funded is for a greater purpose. Um, no, but um, look, at, um, uh, look at Apple computer, okay? Is the world a better place because we have smartphones? Okay, is the world uh, a better place because we have iPads? Um, and uh, in the, in the life science, look at uh, Moderna. Okay. Moderna was a heavy venture capital. I got the the Moderna vaccine. Like, you know, Hey, that's pretty good. We
0: we, we had Moderna's co-founder Robert Langer on the show a a few months ago. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, how, how could, and again, if venture capitalists fund fund at least several thousand new companies a year, a lot of them don't amount to much anyway, some of them are going to be controversial in what they bring forward. You know But again, we live in an economic world If Facebook is such a, a bad thing, how come so many people in your generation are hanging out on it? Like it, you know it can't be rat poison uh, you know, or we would have lost a whole generation of people. Um, so uh, uh, by and large, innovation, it, it, since, since the earliest days of society, innovation is, has always been what moved things forward, and it's not going to be perfect. And sometimes government's going to have to step in and control things at the edges. That happened at the time of the big oil monopolies. You know, it happened at the time of the big telecommunications monopolies. It, there's got to be limits on innovation, and government's role is to make the trade offs between uh, innovation and, and greater good. That's why we elect men and women to government to decide those things. But it's the innovators are never gonna be totally self-policing. They're gonna innovate.
0: So Peter, since we're talking about future trends, I'll just end the interview on some maybe quick fire questions uh, to get, get your thoughts on certain sectors. What are some of the most promising sectors and trends on your mind for the next 10, 20 years, 30 years? Yeah.
1: Uh, I think um, while we've made a lot of progress in artificial intelligence, in, in computers, teaching computers, I, I think we're at the, the early days, early days of that. And I think that's something in five or 10 years, that's going to bump up. Against a lot of regulation, and say, wait a minute, how can you have a computer deciding this and no humans involved? Yeah, blah, blah, blah? you know, they'll be you watch <laughs> that. That will um, the power of uh, AI will um, become a regulatory issue if it keeps increasing exponentially uh, as it has. I think, you know. Four or five years ago it was fashionable to talk about the internet of things and that's kind of not a big thing in the news anymore <laughs> but you know everything is getting automated there won't be uh, i mean obviously your doorbell your door lock uh, your oven your uh, everything is is online but it's still the interconnectivity of modern life Uh, still has a way to go. Okay. I I mean, it will be so different, Tiger, for your children, how automated their life is physically compared to what it is uh, today. And there will be opportunities in that. And particularly in um, in the developing world, which isn't so automated now, they'll just... Skip a generation of things. Look look at, I I work a lot with India now. And, you know, India never had plain old telephone servers. You know, (laughs) India went from having no communication to everyone on cell phones. They just skipped a whole generation of technology. And as the world becomes more automated, I I think you'll see things like that where, where backward nations can suddenly adopt technologies that will be so cheap that will bring them into the modern world. And they would have uh, uh, gone through uh, one or two generations of, of, of outmoded technology. So I, I think there'll be uh, And automation also has to do with robotics and, and what gets done physically by people and what can get done by machines, particularly AI powered machines. So it's your kids are going to have a great world, Tiger.
0: Does that uh, mean you're bullish on augmented reality, virtual reality, AR, VR, these things?
1: Yes, the, the short answer would be yes. You know, I, I never had a lot of involvement with augmented reality until over the last year um, at uh, this Indian firm that I support, Westbridge Capital. We have a global meeting every year. We couldn't have a global meeting this year. so. We sent out Oculus headsets to the 110 investors and um, we did a walking tour of India that we put in 3D and it was like they were there. We 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 had a great investment year at Westbridge, but they were more impressed with the uh, virtual reality explaining what we were doing in the places we were involved with. It was very powerful. You know, it's it's. Fighting a price curve, you know, Oculus has an offering out now at 199 bucks, but but when it's uh, when it's 25 bucks, uh, that technology will really starts to move.
0: So, so the guy that made Oculus, Palmer that uh, founded Enduro, which is a military tech company. W- what are your thoughts on military tech? Palantir, Enduro, these these things, hardware. Uh... Well, uh, facial
1: recognition, I mean, you put a lot of, uh, you know, kind of third rail stuff in there. There's generally a place for these things with the proper constraints. And the political debate is what are the proper constraints? You know, if, uh, if facial recognition could, could help you catch horrible uh, criminals and rapists and thugs, um, uh, that uh, no one would question it. But um, what constraints do you put around military technology? What constraints do you put around policing technology? You know, you these are not things that you should let the free market figure out. Those are things where you're going to have to have some level of government intervention to establish appropriate boundaries. And everyone would agree on the boundaries. That's why you have elected officials. That's why you have democracy.
0: So we're currently doing this thing called podcasting, which didn't exist many years ago, but nowadays it seems that Silicon Valley are all on Clubhouse. Have you heard about Clubhouse and are you on Oh
1: yeah, but it's so old fashioned. Tiger, it's just (laughs) audio. I I mean, he's like, God, like, I think I'll call my buddies, you know, like, but, um, uh, but that's, that's you know, it's, it's slickly packaged. Uh, you know, Andreessen is a big funder of that. Mark and Daniel <laughs> on there do their things. But, Every um, day. <laughs> it, you know, the experience is not exactly an out of body experience. <laughs> I mean, it's like talking to people.
0: Is this the future? So it's not the future in some way. Well,
1: so. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. We'll. Um, We'll see see what clubhouse begets, but I'm not sure there's a whole generation of uh, interesting things coming from that.
0: Last two questions. The first one, uh, what would be one contrarian view that you hold that many other VC people might disagree with? Anything contrarian from you?
1: Yeah. um, I think the VC industry can vastly expand the opportunity set of people who participate as venture capitalists, people to whom venture capital is given. Both of those groups don't look much like America today. And I think they can become much more like America and returns will even get better. I I don't think there's an economic cost of doing that. But right now, venture capital is still a quite exclusive club. And particularly older venture capitalists have different views of how how much the industry can be democratized. But I'm an optimist who I think in the next 10 years, a lot of new participants can come into the venture industry and a lot of new participants can receive venture capital that demographically don't look like those at the party at the moment.
0: The name of our show is Policy Punchline. So last question at the end, uh, in our tradition, what would your punchline be for this interview, for the VC community, for your career? What's the punchline?
1: Well, I think the punchline is that opportunity and innovation are unstoppable, that as a society and as an industry, we need to find ways to make sure everyone is participating in that, not just certain demographics. And as a society, we have to understand that sometimes innovation will go right up to the boundaries. That's what innovation is supposed to do, and will even go past the boundaries. So therefore, societal forces are going to have to rein things in like they're doing now. It'll be a great political debate. It'll be a great coming decades. You're lucky to be young. I wish I were around for it.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much, Peter. I. I, I uh... I, I was betting on whether your punchline would be uh, Bitcoin to the moon. You know, it's, uh, it, it's not. So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, don't, uh, I'd be more involved in a round trip and I'm not sure Bitcoin will get you back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation today and, and t- telling us so much. How can people follow you? Do you, are you on Twitter? Do you write often anywhere?
1: The, the truth be known, I live under a rock. Okay, I rarely. We're, we're not that you're such a distinguished guy, Tiger. I wouldn't do this. I am not on Twitter. I'm not on yeah. Facebook. I'm nowhere. I uh, I teach my uh, 80 students a year at Stanford, and uh, but um, uh, and I I manage my financial affairs. My wife and I have six kids. I manage my yes. family. We have grandchildren, and um, life has worked out great, and I can provide for all that and that's where my focus is so i'm um, uh, i don't hang out on social media
0: now that you're on podcast that's all that's all you know yeah. so th- thank you so much peter and uh uh we'll, we'll we'll uh definitely encourage our listeners to seek you out to to follow your investment, follow your work and uh, encourage them to uh, learn more about all these trends that you talked about. So thank you so much for listening today. Uh, That that concludes this episode of Policy Punch Now. You may watch this video on uh, YouTube, listen on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, your preferred podcasting platform. Uh, You can rate and review us. Uh, We'll see you next time.